You straddle the middle stand or act like a middle stand until you're ready to be a startup. Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC 10X podcast and today we have Neil Thanedar with us. Neil is an entrepreneur, investor, scientist, altruist and an author. He is the founder and GP of Utopic Ventures, a PC biotech VC fund investing in the future of science. In this episode, we talk about Neil's story and how he started investing, what are middle stands, why startups should stay indie as long as possible, what's their focus at Utopic Ventures, Biotech 2.0 and lots more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Hey Neil, so good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great as well and pleasure having you today on the podcast and I loved all the blog posts on your site. Very intriguing. Uh, but to start start this conversation off, uh, can we first have your story and how you started investing? Sure. So yeah, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, a big part of my story growing up was uh, my dad quit his job as a chemist when he when I was two years old and he started a one-person testing lab. Uh, and so I really saw that lab grow uh, for many years. I started uh, in St. Louis with just kind of one building, uh, you know, two different rooms. I would be in the front room, you know, either just playing with stuff, uh, reading a book type of thing while he was working. And so really got used to that. And for, for many years, he'd kind of uh, bootstrapped for over 10 years, eventually uh, started taking uh, bank financing to make acquisitions, got the company over 500 people by 2008. Uh, and then he lost the entire business in the 2008 recession. Uh, he basically had a couple bad quarters. Uh, the bank took the business and sold it for the exact amount that uh, the loans were. And so, you know, 100 million plus in value uh, was basically evaporated in months. And so I was at the University of Michigan getting a molecular biology and business degree, and I really wanted to start a biotech company. That was my plan. I was applying to Genentech internships in the summers, and like that was my focus. Uh, but when 2009, 2010 hit, we had to do something to save the family business and do something new. And so we started a two-person testing lab in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, just me and my dad, we were doing either switching between the phones or the testing uh, website or sales, uh, a lot of everything. We eventually grew that business. Uh, you know, in two years, it had 15 people and was profitable. Uh, six years, it was 50 people and uh, got an f- initial acquisition. We got a second acquisition more recently. Uh, and so the full company is now uh, exited uh, and able to kind of get my dad back on track. Uh, and then it also helped me personally see what was kind of next in startups. And so I'd kind of done a very strong small business. And then it gave me the idea for what would be the startup equivalent of this. Like, why are there no B2C labs in America? Why do no one actually give this information to the people who are actually consuming these products? And so I built Labdoor. So labdoor.com with my two co-founders, we've built a site that's tested over a thousand products uh, you know, tens of millions of people have used it. It's uh, a really powerful tool for researching and buying the best supplements. And so we've really are the independent alternative to the FDA. Now we test CBD and dog food and baby formula and really anything in globally also. So like the top protein powders in India and Brazil, and there's a lot in other countries, there's all these different competitors and counterfeits and all these major issues with these products. And so we were able to, you know, raise 
$7 million in seed and Series A financing, went through Y Combinator in 2015. Uh, I was one of the first scientist CEOs in YC. Uh, Ginkgo Bioworks was a class before us. And so I've seen a lot of YC and biotech as they've come along. I've seen YC grow. YC was a very small. We were the first class over 100 companies. We were the uh, second class that got the 100K checks. All right. Like even then, it was a really inflection point. People weren't sure in 2014, 2015 whether YC was going to be as big as it is now. And so I started angel investing very early, like first in kind of other companies in my batch or in future batches. And I've really wanted to write those first five to $10,000 checks to those companies. And over time, as I kind of helped those companies fundraise more, it was a slightly bigger check that they needed and a slightly earlier stage that they needed. And so I really honed in on this idea of fifty dollars to $100,000 checks for biotech. And that's where I'm at. Certainly. And thanks for sharing that story. I'm sure that's going to inspire many out there. Uh, and like you're doing multiple things. You're still the founder of Labdoor. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And you're also running Utopic Ventures, which is your venture firm, right? Yes. And so that's an, I think that's a more modern uh, phenomenon that's going to happen more and more. So I think especially with smaller funds, five, $10 million funds, or even these like one, two million a year rolling funds on Angelus. I think funder investor combos are really great because you get this great deal flow from whether it's YC or whether it's the other founders around you. There's just so many people who you're you're doing that work currently and so you're you're either fundraising yourself and so you're meeting investors, right? You're meeting other founders. And so I think the combination is really great. Absolutely. I totally agree. Uh, but what I've seen is like both these jobs, being a founder and being a VC are like extremely hectic, right? You have to fundraise for your company and you now also have to fundraise for your VC firm, right? Yeah. Uh, you have to uh, like get your clients in for the company and then also source your LPs and then also on the f- like deal flow side, you have to source these companies. So it, it's still a lot of work. So are you a solo GP or do you have some people helping you out here? So it's solo GP, uh, no one helping uh, in this sense. And so I think the deal flow, a lot of it, what I've done is really developed an inbound deal flow, which is kind of, Labdoor is very much that way too. It's uh, it's an SEO machine, Labdoor. So like we figured out a way where if we make the best content in the world on these topics, on we, we actually have tested, like, so everyone else is writing a blog post about how they tried the protein powder. And we actually took the protein powders in a lab and like reverse engineered them and got the purity and accuracy data. It's just so much better. Uh, and I think the similar idea that I'm trying to do with my own investing and being a founder is that I want to write the most interesting things possible, the most ambitious things, g- get other ambitious optimists excited, right? And that just should be driving inbound to where I'm fielding a lot of inbound and right? I'm getting hundreds of companies and founders that want to talk to me. And then I can filter through like which ones do I want to recommend to Y Combinator, which ones do I want to potentially invest in. Being very focused on biotech and first check in biotech specifically is a very specific niche. So that can quickly kind of narrow down which ones are investable versus I'm just advising. And so so those are some of the ways where I can deal with the deal flow. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's super interesting that you're able to do these two roles and like do them well. And that's because like of the brand credibility you've built over time because of SEO and stuff like that, wherein you have that inbound deal flow that does it doesn't require that much effort now from you to like get them in right they're just flowing to you uh that's great uh and that's that's on the on your company side and on your venture firm side and you have a lot of very interesting uh, ideas shared on your blog with that you keep sharing 
Uh, and one of the most intriguing ones that I found was uh, talking about the middle middle class of startups, right? Uh, some something that you call middle stands, right? So can you can you tell our audience what are middle stands? So middle stand is a German word for a specific kind of company that's meant to be. It's the closest thing to American is like a family-owned business, what we'd call a family-owned business, and it's something very similar to what Avamine is, uh, the first business that me and my dad created. We even like between me and my dad, we call those Avamine style businesses where it's just and that goes for anything. If you had a, a a great construction company that made 10 million a year in revenue, that's like to me, it's a middle stand business or an Avamine style business. And those are excellent. They're like you can you can build a great family life on that. Right. It's a low it's usually a local business that like everyone works in the same building. Right. So overall, it's like it's a good quality of life for you and your employees. Uh, it can be something that's like transformational to someone's life. In a lot of people who say uh, they want to start startups to get rich, uh, what they really mean is not billionaire rich, because I think there's not much difference truly between billionaire rich and 10 million rich. Um, I haven't personally experienced it, but I've met a decent amount of people who have done that. And I really do think that what what people want is really in that, you know, one to $10 million rich is that's really what's the freedom and the life that they really want. And so if they're really just optimizing for that, uh, those middle stand businesses that are the 10 million to 100 million revenue type businesses uh, are great. And you can build kind of in many ways, Berkshire Hathaway started with, you know, a single middle stand and then grew to many, many companies. And then the middle stands themselves can get very big. Uh, And so you can get multi-billion dollar companies with conglomerates like Tiny. Uh, And so there's all these options for it. But I, I just love I think more companies should try to focus on that. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I've personally worked for some of Tiny's portfolio companies. So I, I find that model very interesting that uh, they're just snooping up like tiny companies uh, and making them profitable. And then like they, and they keep starting new businesses as well. Like Andrew, the founder, has has this idea every now and then. And the, it, all he does is he tweets about it. That's it. Right. And if he sees that there is interest there, there is traction, he like gets someone and builds it for them. That's it or her right and that's incredible right and maybe it works out maybe it doesn't right if it works out he scales it doesn't that's that's fine like but that that's an amazing model i think more people should be doing it and this model uh, of the middle class of startups wherein you also retain your quality of life and you're also building a helpful and profitable business uh and i think that model needs to be popularized a lot more i think the default mode of starting a business nowadays has become doing a venture back startup that you would you have an idea you need some funding to make it work right that's that's what people think right uh so th- thanks for sharing that right and another idea that you had was that you want to create a y combinator uh, for middle stance right so can you throw more light on what that would look like if that comes to fruition yeah i think that's a, a separate idea it's not what i'm uh, actively chasing now but i think what ends up happening with uh, these two types of businesses is uh, the middle stand type businesses are very popular with private equity once they get to 10 million plus in revenue. The challenge is kind of getting them from zero to, to one and then one to 10. And there are some people, either it's a family business or they have this insider information, right? They can make these middle stand businesses very easily. 
And so you can, you'll find these repeat founders who are in their 60s and 70s, and this is their like sixth, seventh, eighth middle stand business, and they can just churn them out because it's a playbook. And it's, it's much more reliable and repeatable. And so the likelihood of success is much higher, but the exit value might be lower. And so what we've got to figure out is one way to do to solve that investing problem is that you want to get very early stage. And so you might have to get in you know, $100,000 investment at a million dollar valuation, you know, get 10% or more of the company um, in a middle stand, like in a business that's going to be a middle stand. With that $100,000, uh, a middle stand type business is usually a service business. So you can p- potentially start kicking up, like w- w- spending less than 50K, you might be able to make more than 50K, right? And th- in that first amount of money. And I think that's very key is the how much, how much turnover there is, how quickly. If you're able to do that very effectively, then you won't need to raise that much money. There might be one or two other places where a 10% for a million dollars like in three or four years might be needed. But there's kind of only a few places where that funding is required. And so I would, if I was a private equity firm that normally invested, normally buys companies at that, you know, 30 to $50 million valuation, uh, at $10 million in revenue, I would consider investing much earlier, basically creating seed stage private equity, right? Because if there's a kind of the way that VC versus PE is split, it's currently split kind of the idea is that it's split by timing. It's like VCs are early and PE is late. But another way to think about it is like VC does the risky stuff, the riskier investment, like they're actually going for 1000x or 10,000x returns potentially, whereas PE is looking for like 5x every time potentially or 3x, 3 to 5x every time. And so these middle stand businesses are great at this 3 to 5x every time, but you might if they wanted to be an even better private equity, you could just invest earlier. So you get 10% of these companies earlier on, and it's a PE style model, you might more consistently get 5 or 10x hits. Uh, but you're also tracking your own companies. And so those are the types of investors that I think should come earlier. Right, absolutely. I love it. Uh, And let's talk about some examples of middle stand. What do these kind of businesses look like? Because I think that's, since this is not a very popular concept, people are not thinking about the kind of businesses that can get get you into the category of 1 to 10 million, right? Uh, Fairly easily, uh, you know. And these are not high cash burning businesses. They are sustainable businesses. And they look quite different from, venture-backed businesses. So can you give us some examples uh, so that our audience understands it better that what are actually middle stands? Yeah, I think the uh, my first business, Avemean, is a great example. And so it's a service business. So it's B2B. Often you're going to find B2B service businesses that have large ticket items, so $10,000 plus per customer, $100,000 plus per customer sometimes. Um, and but what you can do is you can often try to serve a single customer at a time you can get like almost consulting light where in a like a testing lab usually in kind of some of these cases there are there are emergency type of testing there's like rush services and there's reasons why even people who have their own lab might outsource testing uh, for speed or for convenience or for like some specific uh, testing and so in the early days you can just be very custom to solve whatever custom problem someone has. And that's what we did at AFMEAN, where like the first month we had one customer and we did an entirely custom project for that one customer. Uh, and that was, you know, like $20,000 customer, right? And so I think it was, that was really what started the business. And we probably only spent like thirty or $40,000 that month, right? And so it was like, we didn't need that. There wasn't that much of a variance in order 
to get the thing kicking up and running. And so I think those are the some of the characteristics to make the business successful. You see it in construction, you see it in manufacturing, you see it in a lot of different places. Um, and uh, Brent Beecher calls these boring businesses. I think like there's an interesting way of kind of thinking through what makes them exciting. And I think we're talking about is like the predictability in some ways that uh, makes it exciting. And then uh, what is also kind of exciting for me personally is the like the freedom aspect of it is like many more people can do this. And so there might be one or two or three orders of magnitude more middle stands that are possible to be created than venture backed billion dollar startups. There's just like by power law, there are just more $10 million companies than there are billion dollar companies. And so just it makes more winners. Yeah, certainly. That should give a better idea of what middle stands can look like. Basically, your ticket size is much larger than usual or typical venture-backed companies, right? It has to be, you know, in multiple thousands of dollars per client at least, right? Uh, And that is how you don't need maybe, you don't need like hundreds of thousands of clients to make it work, right? It's like if you get a bunch of clients, a good bunch of clients, you're good, right? You're still making good money, you have less stress, uh, and you're leading a good life while running the business, right? That's great. Exactly. They're more people-based businesses generally. And so you can kind of manage that, 10 people to 50 people business. And then it like it even scales down to one or two people. It like it, it can be effective at a small scale. And that's the big difference. The hard part with startups and Labdoor is like a classic example of the opposite where Labdoor doesn't work until you test. You we have to test all these products first and it costs like millions of dollars to do all this testing for, before you even show up to the website because it's, it's completely useless if you show up to Labdoor and we haven't tested anything yet, right? And so we have to actually do that work ahead of time. And then it drives this marketplace that tens of millions of people can all use the same website. And so uh, Avemean versus Labdoor having the two experiences where uh, in many ways they're actually both middle stand businesses, like in terms of size and revenue and all those types of things. Uh, but they got there in very different ways. Uh, and I think it's more about, to me, like creating value, like as much value as you can create as quickly as possible. And then you can kind of figure out where the exits come along the way. Right. Absolutely. And another very interesting idea that, you, that you've shared on on your blog post is uh, about that founders should stay in the as long as possible and try not to raise uh, the first chance they get or any money they can get, right? Uh, and given the current market as well, it's like difficult to get the money in. Of course, the fundraising markets aren't great right now. So uh, can you talk us more into that idea that how can founders build their ideas and work on their companies without raising external capital uh, or maybe getting some capital that's non-dilutive, right? Yeah, I think raising as little as possible is key. It's what Paul Graham calls high resolution fundraising. And so you're you're it's like in business school they would call that like just in time production, right? It's like you're trying to be as efficient as possible. You're like only raising the money in order to do the next batch of work, right? And so in biotech it's often I'm meeting companies that have an idea and for a breakthrough company and they need fifty to hundred thousand dollars to do the proof of concept. And then immediately after that, the proof of concept in the lab is then going to need to be tested on at least you know ten subjects. And so there's going to be, need to be a preclinical or a pilot that needs to be next, and that's going to be at least a million dollars. And usually, what a VC will do, especially a VC that invests two fifty five hundred a million, will try to tell you is, hey, uh, you should do both those rounds together, right? Like raise a million dollars now. Uh, because you don't know what's going to happen and maybe your your proof of concept fails and you're going to need more money, which is a good answer for them. But the challenge is for you, 
it might take you 12 or 18 months to raise that million or more, right? And so if you can raise, if you're the kind of person who can raise a million dollars in a month or two or three, by all means, raise that money. Uh, but I think what one, I think by raising less early, you get more optionality. And if you do one, as soon as you start raising, you basically start this clock, right? It's like you basically start a treadmill where you get a higher burn rate, you end up spending more money, and then you're going to need to fundraise again. And so again, what like Paul Graham or Y Combinator would call default alive versus default dead. This idea is if you force yourself to basically bootstrap or raise as little as possible, you find a way to get to a default alive. And there's some potential way where you can kind of straddle the line between the two, a middle stand versus a startup, where you can actually make your business more middle stand like at the beginning. I actually like that as a st startup strategy in general is even if you are eventually going to scale to millions of users, you might just act as if your product is currently only serving a few very high value customers. And so you could make you know the product very customized for a few people and maybe charge them as early as possible to prove that there's some value there. And so in those cases, you can kind of, you straddle the middle stand or act like a middle stand until you're ready to be a startup. And that keeps you indie as long as possible. Certainly. Yeah, that, that's a great idea that you shared there. And uh, at Utopic Ventures, you're mostly uh, dealing with scientists because biotech is a specialized space. Uh, they come up with an innovation and, uh, or an idea, and then you fund that uh, based on what they have, what the idea they have or the research that, uh, that they've conducted. So, uh, so you're mostly dealing with these scientific people, right? And do these same people go on to become founders of the companies that they're building. Uh, do they become the CEOs of the companies or has it ever happened that you think, okay, this is great. The idea is great, right? This can be a thing, uh, but I don't think that this person can lead this company. We need a different CEO. Do you ask them to maybe get a you know, business co-founder, something like that? So would love to get your perspective on that. I've never asked a scientist to get a business co-founder. I find that some scientists do that on their own. Like they understand that what they're really good at is the science and they want someone to help them on the business. But what I see the most is just the scientist is very capable of being a founder. And I just think that that's, I think the, the core to my thesis is that scientists are underrated as founders. And if you invest in the scientists at the early stages, you're able, and with that $50,000 to $100,000 check goes a lot further because that scientist might be able to turn right back to their university lab subcontract. This is how Genentech started, right? It was just, they went right back to UCSF. They took that initial $100,000 check and spent it half, at least half it at UCSF doing that testing, right? And so I think what you'd want to be able to do is the flexibility of the scientist being able to be the founder is great. I don't think you could like, my job is never to like walk into a random lab, pick a scientist and be like, you can be a founder. Uh, as much as I like would love any scientist to try, like I think a great great scientist CEO can come from anywhere, but like not every scientist is a great CEO. The things that I would want to figure out is it's more of a selection criteria for me is if I do find a scientist who I say, oh, that's going to be a great CEO, the combination of the two, like it's an immediate positive signal for me as a VC to like, this is like, this is someone that I could definitely invest in. And then of the pool of scientist CEOs, I'm trying to find the best ones. Uh, as early as possible. And so I'm trying to catch the signals. And that's where like being in YC and all that kind of teaches you is like, we've, I've seen like equipment share great founders. Um, but at a very early stage, I saw them in 2015. And now like multiple companies in my class have gone public. And I, I remember that they weren't necessarily the they were definitely not the hottest companies in demo day, they were not the companies that had the most polish or were from the fanciest places or the best pedigrees. 
uh, they really had just the longevity and a great idea and they just pushed it longer than anyone else. And so I'm looking for that. And so as much as possible, I would like to convince more scientists to believe that it is possible for them to be a great CEO. I think that that's sometimes we internalize other people's biases. And so if there's like an external bias that scientists make bad CEOs, we we believe it. And maybe like I got lucky in the sense where I, I grew up in a household where a scientist was CEO every day. Right. And so I just like that was normal to me. And so it, it seems easy to me. I did it for two companies and it was easy for me. And I would just think it's easier for more companies than you think. And a lot of the best biotech companies in the world, the Ginkgo's and Twists and Solugens of the world, they're all scientist CEO led. And uh, to this day, recursion, public companies still scientist CEO led. These are all, you know, PhDs who spun out their research themselves and took it all the way to, you know, NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, right? These are just exciting opportunities. And if I can get in, you know, first, first check, uh, then it's an amazing venture opportunity too. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I, I strongly believe in that idea that you just mentioned that uh, a lot of time it's about what you believe and not about your skill level. Right. Uh, and I always tell people to motivate them that it's not that you're not ready. It's just that you think you're not ready. Right. Yeah. Just just believe in yourself and take the leap and everything works out. Right. And you'll be surprised how it works out. Right. Uh, so great message there. And uh, now let's talk about the subsectors within biotech, right? Uh, so can you tell me what are the broad sub- subsectors or categories of deals that you're seeing uh, at Utopic Ventures? So I've been, I wrote about this recently, what I'm calling biotech 2.0 is kind of the next generation. I think there's a great historical analogy between the biotech revolution that's happening now and the internet revolution that happened 20, 30 years ago, or it started, right? And we're kind of nearing the end of the internet revolution, the beginning of the next biotech revolution. And so I would say biotech 2.0 is very much like web 2.0, where we're starting to get the personalization. It's starting to go one to many versus like web 1.0, biotech 1.0 is a, is a, is just, we are creating these structures with a COVID vaccine where everyone gets the same vaccine. And we're just now you can see it in biotech research. The things that are in phase one, phase two, phase three are, you know, personalized, customized cancer vaccines that are based on very similar technology. And so you're going to increasingly see both on the diagnostic side, the testing side, the costs are coming way cheaper. So genetic testing is way cheaper, Uh, like Moore's law or faster drops in testing costs. Right. And so with all of that, plus the, uh, we're going to get much more personalized data from ourselves. So instead of the annual blood tests, we're going to get daily or by the minute data from ourselves, uh, that's going to help with personalization. And then the actual like technology of being able to take the mRNA and quickly customize it to an individual, and all the other gene therapies and different things that we're able to do. Um, so the personalization of biotech in the like pharmaceutical or like medical side, uh, that's what I'm looking for for biotech 2.0. Uh, and that, that's one big subsector that I'm really excited about. I think a second subsector sector that I'm really excited about is industrial biotech. And I think it's a similar reason, which is like cost or the inputs costs have come down for decades. And it's like, similarly, the historical analogy of for tech is you kind of in the 90s, you finally get this uh, internet revolution after 20 or 30 years of hardware revolution that has to happen, right? I think a lot of that is kind of what happened in biotech last 20 or 30 years. And so now what we're going to get is 
where biotech used to only be, we used to be so expensive that you can only use it for expensive pharma applications. I think you'll increasingly be able to use biotech for industrial. So you'll be able to replace plastics and cotton and like all these other household uh, oil and gas and everything with more biotech. And if that starts happening where the costs come down to where biotech is eating everything in the world, that's when you'd get the next generation of this. Uh, And this is the same kind of idea of the software eating the world versus biotech eating the world. I think we're right in that phase where biotech can affect everything instead of just pharma. We're already, just with pharma, biotech is already the second biggest VC industry after software. Uh, But with, if we can really impact the whole world, it completely changes the game. Absolutely. I totally agree. Uh, and in, in terms of the kind of interest biotech gets, you know, like AI was kind of subdued for a lot of years. And then suddenly we had a boom, like everyone is talking about AI, right? Uh, same thing with Web3 as well, like it was going on. And then suddenly we have a boom and then a burst as well. Uh, do you think that kind of a moment can happen uh, with biotech? Uh, if yes, then what do you think that will be? I think it, it keeps coming in cycles. I think the fun thing about being on the edge with different industries. Like I love being on the edge with biotech, but also uh, I've been, you know, investing in crypto for six or seven years now. Right. And I really like AI and I have, uh, I had the first Oculus. And before that I had like the, the Zeiss device that you could put like a phone, like a smartphone into it. And then like that created like a kind of VR environment. Right. And so like, I'm always trying to find the newest device for anything. And so in every one of these fields, you kind of get these generally five-year hype cycles where things go up and down. And I really feel like like biotech was, its last hype cycle was 2020. And you saw it in the public markets where uh, you know Moderna and all these things flew up. And then we had a big crash in the last year or two. And it's like, it's going to come right back up. There's going to be another five years. It's like the same thing with crypto. It's like, I, I end up not worrying about it. Maybe I try to sell at highs and buy at lows a little bit. But other than that, I don't mess with it too much. I just kind of hold as much as possible. And I kind of think the same thing is true in biotech. Is like, you, if anything, like you, it's a little bit of a buying time right now, right? It's like both the public markets and the private markets are down over 50% in biotech. So if there's ever a good time to buy, it's now. But generally speaking, it's more of a 10, 20, 30 year bet that you're making on biotech. And so dollar cost average in, do whatever you need to do to get into biotech. But I think it's important that that, that's a core part of anyone's investing strategy. Totally agree. So I'm I'm kind of a burnt hand when it comes to crypto, but I think that's just 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 a personal thing. Uh, but yeah, uh, now let's move on to my last main question before we move on to the rapid fire round. And this one is about uh, what's one change uh, that you wish to see in the startup or the VC ecosystem? I think we need more early stage investors. We need more people who are willing to take the the true gamble on a founder. I, I think that the Y Combinator, Techstars, 500 startups were all created in like a three year, three or four year. It's like 2005, 2006, 2008. They were all created in a big bunch. And there was like a whole wave of like, we're going to be the white combinator for this little region. And like all this the explosion happened and they kind of all came down and YC kind of tried to kind of win the space, which is great for YC in the sense that they're going to win for those 500 companies and those 500 companies are going to be excellent. And if you can be an LP in YC, you should do that if you have enough money. Uh, right. But other than that, I would say that it's leaving an opportunity for thousands to tens of thousands of other startups that are happening every year. I think there's 50,000 uh, startups a year that get angel funding, right? And only a few thousand that get VC, right? And so there's a big gap between the two. 
And if there's more people who are willing to take that first risk on these startups and like and shepherd them through, uh, I think that's a, also a great business. It's almost like the middle stand of VCs. Like if you're a solo GP running a five, ten, twenty million dollar fund, uh, you're probably not going to be ever be a billionaire doing that. But you're going to like make a great living. And you're going to help great founders. Like you can help like 10 or 20 founders a year, you know, really get deep with those founders, like really enjoy your life. Like, you know, you won't have to uh, go raise a billion dollars. You won't have to go to Saudi Arabia. Like there's like a lot of benefits to your life about this. And so I think that uh, there's something to be said for being a very niche, very focused VC. Yeah, I totally agree. And I can see another blog post coming on your site called Middle Stands of VCs. Yeah, I'll I'll be looking forward to that. Yeah, if it comes out before this episode goes out, I'll make sure to link it up in the show notes below. Thanks so much for coming on, Neil. And now let's do the rapid fire round wherein I'll ask you five quick questions about the fund and you have to give five quick answers. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. So the first one goes, what are the sectors and regions you invest in? Uh, Globally, and industrial and biotech 2.0. All right. Uh, and what's the typical stage of investment? Angel or pre-seed. What's the typical check size? 50 to 100,000. Where can founders apply for funding in case there is a direct way? Utopicvc.com. Is, uh, there's an open application. Last one. Where can our listeners follow you? So at Neil Thanadar at Twitter and then neilthanadar.com is where I have over 100 essays that I've written over the last 10 years. Yeah, all those essays are great. And I'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes so that our listeners can get there easily. Thanks so much for making time for this, Neil. Uh, Pleasure having you on and happy investing. Thank you. This is great. 